0: Why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 23 this morning. this is your first Sunday with us, or if you have been gone the last couple of Sundays, uh, you have stepped in this morning in the middle of a sermon series titled, From Gethsemane to Glory. We've been examining Jesus' path and the events from the Garden of Gethsemane leading up to His crucifixion. And we're going to continue to study all the way to His ascension into glory. This morning, I'm going to be preaching to you about the cross. About the actual crucifixion itself. We have spent three weeks getting here. The first week, we looked at Jesus and His triumph in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw that where Adam failed in the Garden of Eden... Jesus victoriously reigned in the Garden of Gethsemane. The second week, we looked at Jesus and His trial before His own people, the Jews, uh, specifically the Pharisees and the scribes and teachers of the law, and we looked at them accuse Him and falsely condemn Him to die. Last week, we looked at Jesus on trial before the people of Rome and before Pilate and We concluded last week with the realization that together, the people of this world, the Jew and Gentile alike, have teamed up and decided to kill God. They have decided that He is not fit to live in our world. Last week, they beat Him. They scourged Him for sport. Tied Him to the whipping post. And we pick up there this morning as he's being led away to be crucified. Probably going to start in verse 26. Before I begin in our first verse, can I say that as I was studying for the sermon this morning, something occurred to me that I had never really thought of before. As I was trying to put together uh, points for the crucifixion of Jesus. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are highly symbolic. There are a lot of things in the Bible that I would call fun. To try to draw out the deep wisdom of God and the nuggets that are there. And We see things like, I was just thinking this morning as we were singing, how we will rise on eagles' wings. And the times in the Bible where God references His very own people like eagles. And how interesting it is to look at eagles and look at the things that, that make them different from all other birds and then find out exactly how that applies to the child of God. But when you get to the cross, it is stripped of all the pomp and prestige of anything that would fascinate us. It is plain. It is simple. It's brutal. There's nothing really fascinating about it when you look at it in all honesty. And when we examine what took place to the Lord over this period of about six hours this morning, there's nothing exciting about it. There's nothing to polish up and wow us with. It is the death of an innocent man hung out to bleed and die publicly. And I thought about that when I was preparing for this sermon, how interesting it is that in in the grand plan of God, in the grand scheme of everything, this is the hour that Jesus came for. This is the pivotal point in the entire story of eternity, not just the human race, not just heaven and earth as we know it, but this is the pivotal moment in all of eternity past and in all of eternity to come, and God strips it of its prestige, and everything that would wow us. As I thought about that, certain statements stuck out to me that that I've read hundreds of times and preached on them before. But the reality that it is the preaching of the cross that is foolishness to the world. To think that a great, grand God and infinite wisdom that is answer to the problems of the world That His justice and His love would be completed in such an event like we're going to go through this morning. And As I began to put my notes down, there was just nothing that struck me as, wow, I never saw that before. But it is simple. God made redemption so simple that a four-year-old could understand it. This morning, we're going to look at that together. Luke chapter 23, let's begin in verse 26. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. One of the Gospels tells us that Simon had two sons. Jesus was the only one that they had somebody carry His cross. This morning I have no doubt that the sole reason that this man was asked to carry the cross of Christ was because Jesus was so physically exhausted He could not carry His own. It was customary as they took that long walk up the hill to Calvary and through the streets and paraded these criminals, these men sentenced to death, as they, as they walked them towards the actual hill, hill where the crucifixion would take place, the men had to carry their own cross. There are some commentators who believe that the cross in its entirety, the, the actual both pieces of wood were strapped to them. There are others who believe that only the cross beam that went across the shoulders was tied to their shoulders and they had to walk with the beam up the hill. Regardless of the fact of which one was how it happened, Jesus was so exhausted. He was exhausted, number one, because He had not slept all night. Remember, He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Next week, at the beginning of next week's sermon, I'm actually going to show you a timeline of everything that we've been through so you can kind of get in your, 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 your brain a mental picture of, of the hours and what occurred in, in which hour. But Jesus was praying late into the night. And they came and arrested Him. They took Him and had a trial at night in front of Annas. And they took Him in front of Caiaphas. And then early in the morning, they had a an actual trial in front of the rest of the uh, Pharisees. Jesus has not slept now throughout the night. He has been beaten. He has been mocked. He has went through the absolute physical exhaustion of of uh, being uh, tied to the whipping post and, and publicly beat. There are some doctors who have said that had they not put that purple robe of false worship that I preached on last week on the back of Jesus, that His blood would have flowed to the point He probably would have died before He ever made it up the hill. What we do know is He was brutally beat. The Bible says beyond recognition. I'm not proud to say that I've seen a handful of fights in my days. I've seen people who have been really beat up. But I don't know that I've ever seen a man beat so bad that I couldn't recognize who he was. That's how bad Jesus was beat. He was exhausted. And as he was carrying his cross to the place of Calvary where he'd be crucified, there came a point when he could no longer carry his cross. And the Roman soldiers enlisted this man, Simon, to carry the cross for Jesus. I thought about how vile of a thing that must have felt like. Simon did try to resist originally, but they forced him to do so. Maybe it's because the cross was absolutely stained and dripping with the blood of Jesus. Whatever the reason, we know he didn't want to do it. But he was led away, up the hill to Calvary. Verse 27, a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for your children and for for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Jesus makes a basic reference, I believe, to what would take place in 72 A.D. when the the temple would be destroyed. Jesus basically says, if they would do this publicly to me in the daylight in front of all of you, Where will their wickedness end as time goes on? And certainly that time did come when Nero would would unleash his fury on the people of God, on the first century church, and and, and he would destroy Jerusalem, and he would destroy the temple, and, and, and many people would die, and no doubt exactly what Jesus said, there were probably mothers who wished they did not have children in that hour. There were also two other criminals led with Him to be put to death. Here we see Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, with the criminals. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. couple of things about verse 33. If you've ever wondered why in some times the Bible calls it Calvary and other times it calls it Golgotha, There is no mistake here. There is no contradiction. Calvary is the Latin word for Golgotha. Golgotha is Aramaic. It is the same word in two different languages. And it is there that Jesus was crucified. I look at those four simple words. There, they, crucified him. Isn't it simple? It all came to this moment and we find it in four simple words. There they crucified Him. This is where our salvation occurred, church. If it wasn't for those four words, there they crucified Him. If it wasn't for those four words, you and I this morning would have no hope. There would be no chance for redemption. There would be no justice for our sins being paid, except that we pay them ourselves in a devil's hell for all of eternity as we died the second death. But those four words give you and I hope this morning. There they crucified Him and the criminals. One on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus is exhausted. We have already covered that. He is so tired, He cannot carry His own cross. He has known with certainty that this hour will not pass from Him. There is no chance of a last minute somebody riding in and saving Him away from this death. He knows that in his human life, in his humanity, he will experience real death in a very short matter of time. And it does not—it never ceases to amaze me that on his mind is still these words, Father, forgive them. Oh God, that we would be more like your son. It is amazing that in the hardest and most difficult and tragic hours of his life, He says of His very accusers, of the very men and and ladies there that are against Him, of the very soldiers crucifying Him, Father, forgive them. The Bible says God commended His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, this morning, no matter where you're at, whether you're saved or lost, this morning, if you have walked in this place and you've never been born again and you've never repented of your sins and given your life to Christ, you need to know this. God still loves you. He commended His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. It tells us this about God. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Him. You'll never really be cleaned up until you simply come to Him as you are and, ex- and accept what He's done for you on your behalf. It wasn't that after we decided to become good people, Christ died for us. It wasn't that after God looked and saw that we would turn and and, and love Him with a pure love, then Christ died for us. But while we were still sinners, enemies of God, wrapped up in our own selfishness, full of lust and deceit and bitterness and anger and hatefulness, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in the darkest moments of his life, he still speaks these words, Father, forgive them. Isn't it interesting? He says, for they know not what they do. What does that mean? I want to teach you something about sin this morning. Sin is deceitful. And it is much, much, much more wicked than we think it is. I preached on that last week, so I won't cover it again this morning in detail. Sin is much more wicked than what we think it is. It says they didn't know what they were doing. What does that mean? Were they unaware that they were fixing to crucify a man? Were they unaware that he had done good things? We know that's not true. matter of fact, in verse 35 it says, He saved others. Let him save himself. They acknowledge he was a man that saved others. That had healed the sick. That had given sight to the blind. That had made the deaf hear. So they knew he was a good man. They knew that they were condemning him to die. But it says this. It says they did not know what they were doing. What does that mean? I want to submit to you this morning. It simply means this. They had no idea the full extent of their wickedness. And had they actually known, they would have turned in a heartbeat. Had they actually known how guilty they were before a holy and just God, they would have turned and they would have fled from their sin. But they did not know. They were blind to their own wickedness. They were, they were cold to their own indifference. And though they knew that what they were doing was not totally right in the eyes of man, though they knew it was deceitful, they had no idea exactly how wicked indeed they really were. Brothers and sisters, this is the state of every man and woman that has not been born again of the Holy Ghost of God. They don't realize how wicked they really are. Sure, they would acknowledge they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But the realization that they're enemies of a loving God. The realization that they too are guilty of driving the same nails to an innocent man that came and loved them with a perfect love. Jesus said they do not know what they do. And notice He had compassion on them. Church, we've got to have the compassion of Jesus. They were crucifying Him because they didn't like the truth that He spoke. But His compassion never left Him. We've got to have a compassion for people. And I want to submit to you that in most situations generally speaking all the way from the most wicked man on earth to the to the most righteous christian brother you'll find in the church when people do dumb things they don't typically know what they're doing the bible says the way of every man is right in his own eyes that means when people do things they do what makes sense to them i'm not justifying sin Jesus isn't justifying these guys' sin. But notice His first inkling was, forgive them. Can I ask you a question, Christian, this morning, talking to you, child of God. Is that your natural and first instinct? When somebody does something wrong, forgive them. If it's not your first instinct, you need to get closer to God. You need to know that God's desire is that the life of Christ lives in you and through you and out of you. Our first instinct should be compassion. You might say, but preacher, so-and-so did this to me. So-and-so was this wicked. So-and-so was this deceitful. My response would be, so-and-so doesn't really know what they're doing. So-and-so doesn't really understand the extent of their sin. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank God Jesus said to those of us that are saved this morning on that day, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Hey, I knew that I was a sinner. I knew I was a wicked man. But it wasn't until I came face to face with God that day. And God dealt with my heart that I realized for the first time in my life exactly how wicked I really was. That I wasn't just wicked compared to the man down the street, but that I was hopelessly doomed, guilty before a just and holy God. I didn't really know what I was doing until God shined the light on my heart and showed me how distant I was from Him. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. They divided His garments and cast lots. Verse 36 says the soldiers also mocked him. Other Gospels record that the soldiers cast lots for different parts of his clothing. What a picture. Sometimes I wish there was a movie like The Passion of Christ that that was the full 12-hour event. To really show us everything that took place. But what a picture. Here's the Son of God. I want you to get the whole picture in your head with me. He is up the hill of Calvary. He has actually been crucified. He is not dead yet. He is expanded in the air, hanging between the heavens and the earth. God's answer to our sins and God's bridge from humanity to God. There are a handful of his disciples, a two that we know of, some of the women including his mother who loved him. The majority of the people there are those who have worked to have him crucified. They are sneering, they are making jokes, they are rolling accusations at him and there he is hanging and bleeding and blood is dripping to the ground and our text tells us this, they cast lots for his garments. Somewhere in the midst of that story, somewhere in the midst of that, that space of land, there are a few soldiers, there are a few men that have gathered in a circle and they're playing cards. Trying to figure out who's going to win. Who's going to get his clothes? Who's going to get his garments? I've preached an entire sermon before on that one thought titled this, Playing Games... In a time like this. Playing games in a time like this. And I thought about how many people play games in some of the most desperate moments of their life. Your home is falling apart. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your life is spiraling out of control. And there you are, casting lots, just playing games oblivious to the reality of what's going on, oblivious to the reality of what God is doing, of what God is trying to do, and you're wrapped up in playing games. I think about how true that is a picture in a lot of ways of of the church of our society. I believe that we're at a turning point. I believe we're at a place where people are hungry for truth. They just want to know what the truth is. Just tell us the truth. And God needs some men of God to rise up just like Elijah and say, if Baal be Baal, then serve God. But if God be God, then serve Him. And while people are hungry for truth, while people are realizing that the that the everybody gets a trophy and everybody gets told they're all the same and it doesn't matter if you're, there is no uh, penalty for sin. There is no reward for being good. We're all just the same. Everybody's just good. And we're finding out it hasn't worked. We're, our people are shooting each other and it's dangerous almost anywhere you go. People are afraid to fly on airplanes. Our schools have become violent and our culture is at a turning point where the people are simply saying, somebody tell me what's true. In a large part, the church, we're in the boat and everybody around us is drowning and they're asking for help and they're wanting to know how they can find life. And rather than telling them the truth, you've got to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ and turn from your sinful ways. We're throwing them Snickers bars and telling them, don't worry, it'll all be all right. Eat this, it'll make you feel good. Playing games in such a time as this. This morning I asked you, sir, I asked you, ma'am, where are you at in your life? What are you doing about it? you playing games? Where do you find yourself in our story this very morning in your life? Are you one of the few that are there at the cross in honest adoration of the Lord? You're heart breaking that He had to go through all that for you. Yet overwhelmed with an absolute magnificent love because you see what He did for you. Or are you playing games in a time like this? Jesus is hanging there. The soldiers are casting lots to see who wins. And the people stood there looking on. Verse 35. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. He saved others. What a striking indictment against their own wicked hearts. Little did they know that in speaking such words to mock him up on the cross, they are admitting to their own guilt. Admitting that they understood He saved others. He was a good man. He did good things. He helped those who needed help. Their own words told on them. They knew He was a good man. How could they crucify Him? Can I say it again? Sin is so wicked and deceitful. We have got to stop justifying sin in our lives. Peter said in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, judgment begins in the house of God. It starts with us. Let us deal with our own sins and not excuse them away. Because sin is a wicked, deceitfully thing. These men say He saved others. Let Him save Himself. In John chapter 16 in verse 25 through 27, I also want to point something out. John and Jesus' mother are at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says to His his mother, Woman, behold your son. And He says to John, Behold your mother. I point that out because I, I want to say something about the way Jesus deals with us. It had only been a short matter of hours before John and the rest of the disciples... Had forsook the Lord and fled. It had only been a short number of hours before Jesus, in, in, in His time of need, says to His three closest friends, He says to them, Pray for Me. And He comes back and they're sleeping. And He wakes them up and He says, Could you not pray for one hour? In essence, He's saying, I need your help. I need strength. I need you to be here for me. And his disciples fall back asleep. And they come. And eventually the Bible says, they all forsook him and fled. That's what the Word of God says. All of his disciples forsook him and fled. Approximately 12 hours after that event. Jesus is now on the cross, and there stands John, the disciple who has forsooken the Lord. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in His last dying breath? What does Jesus say in the last opportunity He has to address this man who spent three and a half years with Him and still forsook Him on that faithful night? He says, behold your mother. Take care of her, John. John. Notice He doesn't say, why did you forsake me? Notice He doesn't even say, John, I told you so. You ought to listen to me next time. He doesn't even bring it up. In 12 years of trying to serve God to the best of my ability, I can say I've had that talk with God about 150, 200 times. And it never ceases to amaze me how when we come before Him humbly and we bow before the cross, he doesn't heap condemnation on us. He doesn't say, I told you so. He doesn't say, what's wrong with you? He doesn't say, you're a failure. I'll find somebody else. He just picks up where we left off and says, get up and go and do what i called you to do. This morning, that might be you. You might be John. You may feel like you've forsaken God. You may feel like after all that I, He has done for me, and after all that He's proven to me He loves me, still I failed Him, and still I forsook Him. See your life in the life of John on the cross, at the cross of Christ, where Jesus looks down and simply says, "Do what I told you to do." What a loving and compassionate Savior, Amen. on the cross in the last hours of his life and he's still ministering to his people. He's still loving the lost. He's still pleading for forgiveness. He's still saving the thief on the cross. Verse 36, The soldiers also mocked him coming and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Everybody is mocking the Lord. The soldiers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the people. It's very possible that in verse 36, when it says they offered him sour wine. It's possible they were teasing him there. But there is ample evidence to suggest that either here or in another location, when he says, I thirst, and they give him something, and uh, but he will not take it, there's ample evidence to suggest that what they tried to give him was actually something like an immediate alleviation of pain, some form of painkiller, something that would take away the sting of the moment. The Bible tells us this, but he refused. Why would he refuse something at the absolute most excruciating moment in his life? The answer is simple. He had to endure the full, unbridled, unhindered wrath and fury of God for the sins of you and I and the rest of the world. Jesus had to go through what He went through in absolute completeness. He could not turn from it. It was for this very hour that He came. It was in the garden. He said, God, if there's any other way, nonetheless, Your will be done. And it was the will of the Father that His fury be poured out upon His Son. And so there Jesus hung. The soldiers mocking Him. The crowd ridiculing him alone. And the inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. There are some that have suggested those were the three main languages of the entire world and that region in that period of time. And it is symbolic that the message, this is the king of the Jews, goes out to everyone. Everyone. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, Do not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you today... You will be with me in paradise. Two thieves. Two different stories. Two different results. I want you to look at what they said and let us deal with their hearts based upon what they said. The first one said, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. The other one said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The first one said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. The Bible actually uses the term ridiculed, mocked him there. There is no small number of people who have said the same thing. If you're God, save me. And nothing happens. It's not until you acknowledge He is God. There is no if, and, or but about it. He is the God. The eternal Creator of heaven and earth. The one and only. The great I Am. The way, the truth, and the life. And until you put your faith in Him and acknowledge Him as God alone and turn to Him as Lord and Savior of your life, you will be just like that first thief who died in his sins and never found salvation as he tempted God with the very words, It's your God. Save us. He is God whether you believe it or not. He is God whether the world ever acknowledges it or not. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. The question I ask you this morning is, have you? Because you will. It's not a question of whether or not you will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord or not. The question is when. And the answer to that question will determine where you will spend forever and eternity. If, like the second thief, you do it now. Now. Acknowledge that He's Lord and look to Him to do what only He can in your life to pardon you of your sins and to bring you into His kingdom. Then you will find salvation. Have you done it this morning? Have you turned to Him as Lord? Is He the Lord of your life? Jesus wants to be more than just Savior. He wants to be Lord. That means He makes the rules. That means what he says goes. If he says do, you do. If he says don't, you don't. Is he the Lord of your life or are you the Lord of your life? Is he God or are you God? The answer is simple. You can simply look at your life and answer that question. I'm not asking what you think. I don't need some smart answer back. I don't need some intelligent answer that makes you sound spiritual. Examine your life. What do you do? What do you do with your time? What do you do with your decisions? What do you do with your life? Because what you do determines who your God really is. Is He your Lord or is He not? The second thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. What an amazing story of salvation. Jesus said that he would be with him that day in paradise. I want to deal with that statement in just a moment. Can I say, isn't it amazing that a man in the last hour of his life still found salvation? He tells all of us in his statement, he was guilty. He was not condemned innocently. He says, hey, what are you talking about? You and I are guilty of what we've done. This man has done nothing wrong. He acknowledged she was a thief. He acknowledged she was guilty of death. He acknowledged she was a vile man in his society. He acknowledged that he was in the last hours of his life there hanging to die. That his feet would never again walk the soil of the earth. That he was destined to death. And yet in the last hour of his life, has he turned to Jesus Christ, Jesus said this day, in essence, you'll be saved. It's never too late. It is never too late. Don't give up on your lost friends and family. Don't give up on your coworkers that you've witnessed to a hundred times. Don't give up on your neighbors. It is never too late. If you're here this morning, let me say that no matter where you've gone, you haven't gone too far to outreach the grace of God. But listen carefully to me when I say, don't push your luck. It's not likely that you'll be hung up right next to the Lord with several hours to think about what you're going to do when you die. You're not guaranteed that last moment experience. So don't push your luck. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until time has run out and time is no more for you. Because it's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Assuredly. Isn't God amazing? He does the same thing with this one that He does with John. John. No long talk about everything he did wrong in his life. No long discussion on what a wicked man he was and how great it would be if he would be saved. But an immediate turn to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. It does tell us this much, that for the Christian to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I don't really care to get into all the theology of where is heaven and is he still building it and... How big is it if it's taken this long to build? And what is the difference between paradise and heaven? What I know this is, Jesus teaches us this. The moment we leave this place, as believers in Him, those that are redeemed of God, the moment we leave this place, we're in paradise. Death has lost its sting because of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, it was about the sixth hour, verse 44, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Just trying to walk you through the events of the cross. The sixth hour means noon. They started their day at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour is noon. And it says at noon, the sun was darkened, Darkness was over all the hour until the earth until the ninth hour. So for three hours there's darkness. This was not an eclipse. This was not clouds that covered the sky. This is supernatural darkness. This is God judging the world of sin while at the same time showing His divine sovereignty over the whole event and sending a message to everybody that was there. Imagine being there. Imagine being in the crowd. Imagine being those that were part of this whole event from about 1 a.m. Those who had brought Him into the false mock trial. Those who had condemned Him to die. Those who had brought Him before, the, before Pilate and before the, the, the Roman authorities to have Him killed. Those who were there when they watched Him nearly beaten to death. Those who were there when they watched Him uh, carry His cross up the hill. And now, all of a sudden, at the noon hour, something supernatural happens. Things change. And when it should be light, when it should be the brightest time of the day, darkness covers the whole face of the earth. Wouldn't that be a little creepy? Wouldn't it make you question a little bit if you were on the wrong side of this whole thing? Imagine being one of the soldiers that held the nail. Imagine being one of the soldiers that tied him down. Imagine being the soldier that had the hammer in your hand. Imagine being one of the the, the bystanders that did nothing about it. Imagine being one of the Pharisees who had plotted his death. All of a sudden it seems as if all's going well. It seems as if your plan is being worked out. It seems as if he's only moments away from time. And this whole thing that they had tried to silence and squander and push back away. All of a sudden it seems like there's something else gonna happen. And something supernatural has intervened, and darkness has covered the face of the earth. What a glorious event. What a beautiful picture of God's divine sovereign control in the midst of all of it. When it would seem to us as if the enemy was in such control. Let us not forget that the very wood that that tree was, that that cross was formed out of came from a tree that God created. Let us not forget that the very nails that were driven through his wrist and through his feet came from iron that God had spoken to existence. He was in divine control of everything. Gave life to every last person that was part of His death. This was not a helpless God in the control of an out-of-control people. This was the divine, sovereign, great I Am. Working out His plan from before the foundations of the earth so that humanity could be set free from our sins, so that the justice of God could be satisfied. And we see in this one moment the beautifulness of God's wrath and God's justice and perfection at the same time mingled with a love that we have never seen anywhere else where God stepped in and paid our penalty for us so that we could have life. And in one swift sentence, One swift sentence. We see both. And the sun was darkened and the veil was torn in two. At the same time. The sun was darkened and the veil was torn in two. It's one continual sentence. Look there in your Bible. While the sun was darkened And while God's judgment is being proved, while the Son of God is dying and close to breathing His last breath, the Bible says at the same time the veil was torn in two. And the Gospel tells us that it was torn from the top to the bottom. What was the veil? This is important. Some of you may know. Just humor me for a moment for those that do not. Because it's very important you understand the veil. Before the cross... The Jewish people were God's chosen people to carry out the laws of God and to be a light into the land and to drive out wickedness from the world in which they lived. And in the temple, it was the place where the Jews would bring their sacrifices and it was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The Ark of the Covenant is what housed the power of God. It was where the commands of God were at. It was the it, the ark of the covenant before the cross is what represented God himself the presence of God on earth. This is why when one touched out to touch the ark he died. You see you can't handle spiritual things with the flesh. And in the temple, there was an outer court where everybody could come and everybody could bring their their lambs and their doves and whatever it was that was to be sacrificed. And then the priest would take that and bring it into the inner court. And in the inner court, most of the priests were there. They were allowed to work. It was where the lamp had to be continually kept burning. It was where sacrifices took place. And then in the temple, there was what was called the most holy place. Some call it the Holy of Holies. And in this uh, Holy of Holies is where the ark was kept. It was where the presence of God on earth was housed for a brief, temporary period of time. And nobody could go in there except the high priest. And He would go in and offer atonement on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. But you couldn't go into the Ark of the Covenant. You couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Neither could all of the other priests. It was not a place you could just go into because it was the place where the presence of God was. Now, why could you not go into the Holy of Holies? Not only was it the place where the presence of God was, but... Filthiness and sin could not live inside of that place. Even the high priest who took the blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies, even the high priest first had to go through a ceremony to get himself clean in the eyes of God before he could go into the Holy of Holies. The Bible says there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer court. In that moment, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Representing that the way to God is now open for all the world representing that now you and I have the same authority as the High Priest to go in there, but not only once a year, not only on the Day of Atonement, but because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, all of God's children can go boldly before the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, we can go boldly before the throne of grace. We can enter into the Most High. We can now live and dwell in the presence of God, spiritually speaking, because the veil was torn. And at the same moment, in the same sentence, darkness was on the face of the earth. The veil is being torn. Amen. Thank you, God. The cross is such a marvelous mystery. No wonder Paul said, God forbid I boast in anything except the cross. God help us as a church. Help us, Lord, to boast in nothing but the cross. Help us to not brag about ourselves, our classes, our this or our that, our preaching, our singing. God, we are nothing without the cross. Hopeless enemies of You without the cross. Help us, Lord. Help us, God, to boast in nothing but the cross. So the veil was torn. In Mark chapter 15, in verse 33, Jesus says, Why have you forsaken me? In verse 44 of Luke 23, he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And in John chapter 19, verse 30, he says, It is finished. Jesus took on the entire penalty for our sins. What a blessed thing. This morning, if you're saved, you need to know something. You do not have to earn God's love. The same way you were saved, continue in that walk. We should serve Him because we love Him. And we should love Him because He first loved us. This morning, if you're lost, you need to know you don't have to do anything to become savable. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he took all of our sins, everything that we've done, and placed them on His shoulders. And as a, as, a, as a person who needs to be saved, you must simply look to the cross and look to what Jesus has did and say, I accept that as a penalty for my sins. And to those of you who are saved, even now, when you sin, when you fall, when you find yourself weak, when you, just like John, forsake the Lord, you still must look to the cross and realize it is the cross that covers all of my sins. Thank God for the cross. Where would we be without it? We would be hopeless. Can you imagine, child of God, after your salvation, if you had to keep it by being good? If you had to earn God's love by better behavior, by, by doing good behavior? The cross finished it. And I'm telling you, when we really get a hold of that, how freeing it is and how it will move us by love, true love, to serve the Father. John's Gospel also records Jesus cried out, I thirst. Jesus took upon Him every single one of our stripes. Every single penalty. And he cried out, "It is finished." What a blessed word, "finished." So you don't have to add to it. All you gotta do is accept it. You don't have to complete it. It's not Jesus did ninety nine percent; you've got one percent. It's finished. It's done. What He did is accomplished. It is completed. All we have to do is believe Him. And by faith, let His finished work become our finished work. If it wasn't for the cross, guys, we would have nothing. It's the cross. Maybe you're here this morning and you're ashamed of yourself. You feel like John. You feel like... God, you you know, I've done you wrong. Well, no wonder the cross had to be so brutal. But your penalty has been paid. It's done. It's over. It's finished. Quit beating yourself up. Quit living in condemnation. Quit doubting everything that you believe. Look to the cross. Look to what took, took place there and say, you know what, it's finished. I don't have to live this way anymore. I don't have to live in defeat. I don't have to live in condemnation. There is no more any condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And when Jesus was crucified, God saw me in Him. And every wicked thing I've ever done. And every sin that I've committed. And every sin I ever will commit. God is placed in Him. And it is finished. And get up and keep serving Him. Out of your love for Him. When Jesus said it was finished. My last point, I'll ask our worship team to come. When Jesus said it was finished, it also shows us the divine control of God. He didn't say, I am finished. It. What is it? The will of God. The plan from the beginning. Jesus was a Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. When He said, it is finished... It was when he, when he was in the garden. He said, God, whatever Your will is, I'll do what Your will is. When He said, it is finished, God's plan, redemption, it was complete. What Jesus had come to this earth to do was finished on the cross. And even though He breathed His last... And even though, we'll pick up the story next week, he was placed in a tomb for three days and rose back to life. Even though his, he was getting ready to breathe his last breath, the plan of God was being finished. And God was in divine control at all times. This morning I ask you the question. Has what Jesus did been finished in your life? Have you allowed the finished work of the cross to have reign and rule in your life? Have you been saved? Have you been born again?